Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How are we doing, church? At the 11 a.m. If you're joining us online via Unfiltered Radio, watching, podcasting, glad you're with us. Um, if you're brand new, either uh, online in the house, we are right in the middle of a series called Big Church that Grace just mentioned. So here's like the 50-second recap, and then I'd love for you to podcast it or go to YouTube and you can catch up. But the whole idea of the series is the fact that the church is a big idea. The church is a big deal. And yet it also comes with a lot of big emotions and even baggage. And so, like, if you're just jumping into this series, like, for you, the church might be synonymous with, honestly, abuse and some kind of story you have, with hypocrisy, with meeting somebody and all you got was judgmentalism and walked away. Or maybe you kind of grew up with or have been um, accustomed to a politicized version of the church that kind of became synonymous with Jesus Um, exclusive, insider focus. I mean, we could go on and on, but like that's been a lot of your experience with the church. So some of you, like your posture has been, it's irrelevant and I'm just done with it. And others of you are still trying to figure it out after a decade being away. So it's a big deal. It's a big idea. Jesus launched it, but it also comes with a lot of big emotions and a lot of baggage. And so in this series, my whole goal is that a lot of us would rethink and redefine what the local church is specifically, and this is really important, around what Jesus actually launched. Because when the church was launched, the church was launched as a movement. It was an assembly, it was a gathering, it was dynamic, it was for the world, which means everybody was invited in. And then quickly this whole movement suddenly became hierarchical. In a lot of places throughout history, it became ritualistic. Maybe that's what you grew up with. It became really complicated after launching is really simple. And In a lot of parts throughout church history, it became even immoral and destructive. But when it launched, it was a movement. It was a movement that got started around one singular historic event. And I've said this throughout the series, but the Bible did not launch Christianity. There was no Bible as we know it in the first century. Christians did not launch Christianity. On Easter weekend, everybody deconstructed and walked away from Jesus. The reason that we are here is because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, and then he pulled it off. And he walked out of a grave alive. In the moment they were face-to-face with their resurrected Savior, the movement began to move. It wasn't teachings. It wasn't people. It wasn't a made-up story. It was they saw a resurrected Savior. They went into the streets of Jerusalem. And as we've seen, 3,000 people on opening day placed their faith and trust in Christ. People that could have walked to a tomb to disprove it. And they didn't because they couldn't. Within weeks, 5,000 plus placed their faith and trust in Christ and were baptized. And all of it centered around one thing. Here's the thing that the first century church got that I think we've lost sight of a little bit. They were not unified around a common experience in terms of background. They did not agree on all our theology. They didn't even know a lot of theology. They didn't like have race or nationality or experience or liturgy or any of those things in common. The one thing that united them that should still unite us 2,000 years later is this idea that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God. That was it. 
And the movement of the church got started around the resurrection and that idea, and it began, began to move. And it began to move as a multicultural, multiracial, multinational, multigenerational movement to all people. And as it got launched, we started looking at this last week in Acts, which is kind of what we're journeying through for a few weeks. There was this delicate balance of power between Rome and then the religious Jewish authorities. And so Peter and John started leading the movement after the resurrection in those weeks and months and even years later. And so they saw Peter and John as a threat. They arrested them. They put them in prison. And then they pull them out the next morning. They're like, you got to stop talking about Jesus. And you got to stop talking about the resurrection because we're under Roman occupation and any uprising needs to be stopped by us or otherwise we get in trouble with Rome. And so they let the guys out. They go back to a bunch of the disciples who are all huddled up. They're waiting for Peter and John. They're relieved when they finally see them. And then there's this dramatic moment that we looked at where they come into this room and they begin to pray. Because that's what you do if you've been put in prison and just got let out. That's what you do when things are uncomfortable. That's what you do when potentially your life is threatened. And so they get in that room and they begin to pray. And last week, we just asked this question. If under those circumstances, you got back with those individuals and began to pray, what would you pray for? We'd probably pray for enough money for security detail. We'd pray for protection. We'd pray for safety. We'd be like, quit the rhetoric, chill for a little while. Let's make sure that if we leave, we do it with disguises, or at least we do it in a group because things are getting really crazy in the city. They didn't pray for anything. This is what the first century church prayed. This is kind of one of the first prayers of the launch of this movement. After all of that, they said this, God, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And probably some in the room are like, well, I, think, I don't think you need to pray for boldness. I think you got that down. But they prayed for boldness. And then verse 30, stretch out your hand, God, to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And what we miss in that moment is everything hung in the balance for these guys. Family, reputation, career, their very lives. And yet the first thing that the first century church did with all of that was to pray for boldness. And then they went right back into the streets of Jerusalem and into the temple. And they began to, again, talk about the resurrection and about Jesus and about what they had seen and about what God had done. Now, here's the thing, you probably think the same thing. When I read these narratives as I was studying for this over the last so many weeks, read Acts chapter four, Acts chapter five, the thing that you cannot help but walk away with is this idea of what in the world happened to us? Like we live, and I'm not gonna speak for some of you who are watching, listening outside of the country, but we live, most of us, in one of the safest parts of all of the world. And yet, we are so ridiculously afraid when it comes to, to the message in the name of Jesus. In fact, for most of us, our faith in Jesus costs us, where where most of us live, almost nothing. Almost nothing. Now we think it does, and I've talked about this last week, but some of us um, have this idea of persecution in the West that nobody in Syria would categorize as um, persecution. Most of you are not persecuted. In fact, this is the cynical side of me, but many of you deserve it. Like, it's not persecuted when you are obnoxious and hateful and represent the name of Jesus in a way that Jesus would never sign his name to. Like, that's not persecution. That's just, that's just your fault. So that most of what we call persecution is not persecution. But we, we sacrifice almost nothing. And then you look at the first century followers of Jesus, and here's the reality. You would not be here 
you wouldn't know the name of Jesus. We would not be gathered as a church, and the church wouldn't be gathered all over the globe if those first century followers had not prayed for boldness in the face of incredible oppositions. Millions all over the world wouldn't be worshiping Jesus as Savior. The church would not be in every part of the planet 2,000 years later. The only reason that happened is because they had extraordinary boldness. And the thing that they understood that we lose so that we lose sight of is that they were carriers of a countercultural message. The thing that they were to be bold with was not being obnoxious and hateful and tribal and us and them. That was never how the Jesus movement started. They were bold around ideas like this. I want you to love your enemies. Nobody does that even 2,000 years later. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. They understood that when Jesus walked out of the grave alive, they were now carriers and stewards of this message that everybody lives forever somewhere. And Jesus legitimately was the answer to the question of what do I do with my past? And is there hope for the future? And is this all there is in this life? They understood that Jesus had done something in history that now he was the answer to that question and the world needed to know. It was not a Jewish message. It was not nation specific. It was not generationally specific. It was socioeconomically diverse. Women and children were invited in, which was unheard of in the first century because this was a movement for all people. And they understood that when Jesus rose from the grave. It authenticated and it validated everything and they couldn't help but pray for boldness. If they were worried about what a lot of us are worried about in terms of our modern version of what I would call Western Christianity, which is preserve, protect, defend, my rights, God help us, God protect us, God bless us, God help us to take back, I mean, whatever your version is. If that had been their version of the Jesus movement, it would not have survived six months after the resurrection. And, and I'm going to go hard today, and then, you know, you just, part four will be happier. <laughs> but listen, like, and I'm talking to me, we have grown so comfortable, and in some cases so consumeristic, that we've lost our boldness. Or we're bold around all of the wrong things. And the question for us, because this isn't just an individual question, you have an individual role, but it's corporate, it is the church. How do we recapture that? Like, how do you recapture that? In Acts chapter five, it gives us a pretty good clue, a pretty good indication that after last week when Peter and John were arrested, they get out of prison, they go pray for boldness, and they're with you know, this group of people. And then again, rather than security detail and escalades and God keep us comfortable, they go out into Jerusalem and into the temple, and they just start doing the same thing again. You're like, what's wrong with these guys? And they start talking about the resurrection, and they start talking about Jesus. And here's one of the lines that I love. You read it for yourself in Acts 5, that it says that the surrounding communities actually held the Christians in high esteem. And they did that not because they believed what they believed. In fact, they thought the Christians were weird. They called them atheists in the first century because they didn't have a temple or a priest or any sacrifices. But they looked at the way they lived and said, there is something different about those people. And they held them in high esteem. What if that was said about Christians in the church in our generation? They were bold around the right stuff. And the movement began to move and thousands were saved. Thousands were baptized. Eventually they began to bring their sick into Jerusalem because they heard that these individuals were healing people in the name and the power of Jesus. Word spread everywhere. And so that delicate balance of power between Rome, the occupiers, and the religious Jewish authorities once again was threatened, and the Jewish authorities were jealous, so they go, and now rather than just arresting Peter and John, they arrest the 12 apostles. 
So you remember like the 12 original disciples, um, Judas was out of the picture. They got another new guy as part of the gang. So there's 12 of them. They throw all of them now in prison. Hey, we warned you already, shut up about the J name. Stop talking about the resurrection. Like this isn't allowed. And honestly, Rome is gonna come down on us if you guys don't stop it. So they put them in prison. (laughs) And maybe you know the story. Something or someone, I think the, the power of the spirit of God lets them out of prison. And so then, this is hilarious if you read it for yourself, the the religious leaders get them together and they can't force them really to do anything because at this point they're afraid that the crowds will turn on them and stone them to death. So they they give a request to the church members or the apostles who just got out of prison. They're like, could you go present yourself to the Sanhedrin? Because we can't arrest you. We're afraid of the the crowds and the mobs. And the apostles are like, yeah, sure. So they go and present themselves before like the lawyers, the what are kind of their version of judges before the Sanhedrin. And as they're before the Sanhedrin, they are making their appeal. And here's what happens in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, that the apostles have having been brought before the Sanhedrin, made them appear. And the Sanhedrin are basically like the lawyers of their day. And they were questioned by the high priest. Like, this is the guy. This is the person who's going to have the final say. And verse 28, we gave you, this is the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin to the 12 apostles, we gave you strict orders not to teach in what? In his, in his name. Just real quick side note. Isn't this interesting? That the same thing that was true 2,000 years ago is true today. There is a, a massive tolerance in our culture for you know, God talk, or religious talk, or spirituality, or some force that you're tapping into, or whatever. But the moment you mention the name, things get weird. The moment you drop the Jesus language, things, because Jesus, unapologetically, I've said this throughout the series, was either crazy, or he was the son of God. He didn't give any middle ground. When you make statements like, I am the only way to God, that's narrow and exclusive, and it's either true, Or you're ignorant. And then when Jesus walked out of the grave alive, it validated all of it. But they couldn't even say his name because in his name, like there's something about it that is exclusive. It's defining. It's kind of, okay, it's it's all or nothing. And yet, they said to these guys, you filled Jerusalem, meaning the movement has exploded. Like the one thing they couldn't deny is the fact that what Jesus predicted was happening. It was exploding. People were beginning to follow all over the place. It had absolutely captured the attention of Jerusalem with your teaching and, I love this, and, but you're determined to make us guilty for this man's blood. They're basically, hey, you guys have to stop because the whole Sanhedrin looks guilty. You keep talking like we're guilty for what happened to Jesus. And Peter's like, yep, (laughs) correct. The reason we keep talking like that is because you are guilty. Like, you did this. And then verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we have to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, and Peter can't help himself, whom you killed, my bad, sorry, but you did, you guys killed him. It's just what happened. And by hanging him on a tree, and then verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness to the sins of Israel. And then verse 32, again, this is the apostles before the Sanhedrin. We are, and this is so important, I've said it throughout the series, this is what puts Christianity in a different category. We are witnesses of these things. The foundation, the movement of Jesus, 
was not the teachings of Jesus. Those are inspired. Those are the words of God. But the reason that they have meaning is because Jesus pulled off what he said he was going to pull off by walking out of the grave alive. And their message was not, hey, you should believe what we believe or you should embrace these teachings. Their message in the first century was, we're telling you not about what we believe. That's secondary. We're telling you what we saw. We had breakfast with Jesus after watching him crucified. It authenticated and validated everything. It's the basis for our message. God has done something historical, and we're witnesses of it. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Basically, we cannot stop talking about the resurrection because our leader came back from the dead. If your leader had come back from the dead, you wouldn't be able to stop talking about it either. And so as they're before them, they say, Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death, which isn't a surprise. They put Jesus to death weeks before this. And then verse 34, I love this. This is incredible. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was, this is like tenured professor, highly educated, teacher of the law. This is like, this is one of the guys, had a ton of influence, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So Camille is, is basically like, hey, can we just chill for a second? W- let's excuse these guys. And before we go down the road of executing them, because we've done a lot of that, let, let's, just, let's just think about another alternative. So they dismissed the apostles in verse 35. Then Gamaliel addressed them and said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 4,000 men rallied to him, and then he was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and all of it came to nothing. Camilla is like, you remember that guy, Thutis? It, this is not in extra biblical literature, so it must have been such a short run. It's not even recorded in secular history. It was just, they tried to, you know, harness a revolt or an uprising. Rome squelched it out, and Camilla is like, you remember that? It came to nothing. Rome made sure that that didn't survive. There is nobody more powerful than Rome. And then he keeps going. And... Do you remember Judas the Galilean, who appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt? Now, Judas the Galilean actually is recorded in extra-biblical literature and historical literature that around 6 AD, he led an uprising or revolt. It was all around the fact that the Syrian governor had ordered a census, and there was a group of them that were like, we're not participating in that. And so they led this revolt that eventually they became known as the Zealots. And so if you remember, one of the disciples' names was Simon the Zealot. He was a part of this group. And so Gamila is like, hey, remember that 6 AD, that whole uprising? And, you know, they got a few hundred people around them. And once again, Rome brought that thing to its knees. He, they stopped the whole thing because, again, Rome is the most powerful force in the world. So he, he too was killed, talking about Judas the Galilean, and all of his followers were scattered, and we didn't have to even worry about it. So his implication, the implications are this. Hey, we played that perfectly politically. Like, if we would have sided with the people, Rome would have been against us. If we would have sided um, with Rome, then the people would have been against us. We didn't do anything. We didn't have to take a side. The movement just died out because Rome made sure it did, and we didn't lose any of our political capital. So Gamil's, like, you know, basically his, his advice is just chill. Let's not do anything. Don't take a side. Don't go execute these guys. And just let Rome handle it, and all of it is just going to kind of die out. And so verse 38, therefore, in the present case, I'm going to advise you, leave these guys alone, let them go. And then here's his reasoning. For if their purpose or their activity is of human origin, and Gamaliel is like, and it is, then it's going to fail. 
Like, guys, guys, if this is just another wannabe movement, another knockoff like Messiah, when there's been a lot of those, it's, gonna, it's not going to come to anything. They're not going to have enough momentum. They're not going to overpower Rome. All is just going to die out. Rome's going to make sure of it because, this is a side note, Rome was not against Christianity per se. Rome was against anything that threatened their power or anybody that threatened their power. And in this moment in history, what threatened their power was the new knockoff religion in their mind, the Jesus movement, this new ecclesia of the church. And so they were against that. And then I love what he says. I love what Gamaliel says in, in verse 33. But if it's from God, and it's not, but let's just, let's just for a second, hypothetically, if it's from God, you're not gonna be able to stop these men. You only find yourselves fighting against God. This is a quick side note. If anything is from God, you can't stop it even if you don't like it. And this is just a, a quick note to all of us who, who claim to be followers of Jesus. If you're not, you can just point at us and call us hypocrites. But in our current cultural moment, it is so easy to be judgmental, to evaluate other people's hearts that we don't know, to, through social media channels, basically treat people as if they're not human beings and detach them from a soul and think that we can say and do whatever we want. And the same rules seem to apply to the Jesus movement. We'll talk about anybody, anywhere, whether we have a relationship with them or not. We'll judge their motives. We'll judge what they're doing. We'll judge their methods. And I just want us to be really careful. Be slow to judge. Because you may find yourself accidentally resisting a move and an act of God because that move or act of God does not look like the people, the style, or the methods that you would use. And you have to be, and we have to be really, really careful that we do not allow our personal tastes, our personal opinions, or our personal preferences to be the litmus test for how God can move and who God can use. Because sometimes God is going to do some things that's going to shatter the box of your childhood theology. Sometimes God's going to do things that are outside of your personality. Some God's, sometimes God's going to use a movement that's going to be outside what you understand and what you're comfortable with. But if God's in it, if God's doing it, if God's using it, you can't stop it even if you don't like it. And that's important for us to know. And in this moment, what Gamaliel is saying is this, the only thing that has the power to resist Rome or overcome Rome is an act of God. And little did he know. If somebody could have just whispered into his ear, to hey, just so you know, that's an incredible statement. In 2,000 years, you know Rome? The world power, nothing can overthrow them, nothing can resist Rome other than the act of God. I mean, have you seen pictures of Rome? Have you been to Rome? They could have whispered in his ear, hey, hey 2,000 years from now, Rome, the epicenter of all power, will be adorned all over the city, almost every roof, rooftop with a cross. One day, you know the, the Colosseum where Christians are fed the lions? I mean, everybody knew about the Colosseum. One day, you will walk into that Colosseum as a tourist attraction, and 
overtop the entrance into that Colosseum will be a cross. And those crosses all over the city and that cross above the entrance to the Colosseum where Christians were fed to lions, they will not represent Roman crucifixion. I know it's hard for you to understand that. But 2,000 years from now, they will represent one singular crucifixion that's dominated the entire globe. 2,000 years from now, you know Caesar Augustus, you know Nero, everybody knows them. They have all power. 2,000 years from now, they will simply be footnotes in historical books because they're a part of the story of the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. 2,000 years from now, Rome will not be a world power any longer, but the message of Jesus will dominate every part of the globe, every language, every ethnicity, and every single generation. You're right. It will take an act of God, and little do you know, you are standing in the historical moment where God is launching that act of God and launching this thing called the church, because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Rome, death, hell, and the grave will not be able to overcome it. You have no idea what you're talking about, but you are prophesying exactly what's going to happen. And 2,000 years ago, the church will dominate the globe, and there will be no more Roman Empire. And so his speech persuaded them. Just let them go. Don't enter into the fray of this movement. Let it die out. Let Rome overpower it as inevitably Rome will. Because this isn't from God. And his speech persuaded them. <clears throat> and they called the apostles in. And had them flogged. I just want to land here for a second. Because what we know about flogging has been bits and pieces of a movie. In some ways, even this has been airbrushed. If I were to read you the historical accounts of what this looked like, what this felt like, what this smelled like, we, our stomachs wouldn't be able to handle it. But here's these guys who now have had multiple opportunities, multiple warnings. They've been put in prison two different times. Just shut up. Stop talking about the resurrection. Stop talking about Jesus. Go to your home and, and do what good Christians do, which is to pray for safety and pray that God will move and that he'll also keep you safe and protect you and bless you. And they didn't do any of those things. And it got to the point where they wouldn't renounce, they wouldn't stop. We cannot stop talking about what we've seen. We serve a resurrected Christ. And generally, they would stand in line. They stood in line for hours waiting for their time to be flogged. And generally, it was stone, it was wood and glass, and what was called a cat of nine, nine tails. And the thing about Rome is they saw execution as an art. So they, their primary goal was not death. Their primary goal was prolonged torture. And they had gotten really good at it. And they stood in line, and one by one, they would be flogged. And with the wood, glass, and stone, it would rip into your back. And this is as far as I'll go in terms of explanation. It would tear the flesh out, and then they would do it again. It would tear the flesh out. And in some cases, historically, people would bleed out and bleed to death before they ever got to the cross. And they stood in line to just take it, knowing that they would permanently be identified for the rest of their life as criminals. Every time they took off the shirt, every time somebody saw them in that culture, immediately they would see the scars and immediately they would be identified and marginalized and seen as criminals in their society. And they stood in line until they were flogged for hours. And man, the question that I asked me when I get 
to these parts is how would I respond? How would you respond? And how would the church in the West respond? I think the thought of this would have ended the Jesus movement right there. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go, thinking that, that ought to do it. That ought to shut the movement down. We won't hear any more from these guys. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. You are permanently disfigured. You suffered agonizing torture. All you have to do is stop it and go your way and pray for God to use a different means. And yet, you left the Sanhedrin after that rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. This is the part you just stop, and this has been my feeling as I've read over this for weeks, and honestly just feel the need to repent. I mean, once upon a time, it was the greatest privilege in the world to suffer anything for the sake of the name. And for us, we're not going to be flogged. There's a good chance that it is about 2% of us have suffered any kind of real persecution that could even in some ways go into that category. We're not going to be crucified. But we might be marginalized. We might lose a bonus. You might not get invited to a fraternity or sorority. You might have to give up your politics. You might have to change your view about what Christians have actually been called to do in the culture and what was not to protect our our individual liberties and defend and preserve at all costs. It was to be light. And once upon a time, there was a group of followers of Jesus who said, you gave up your life for me. I'll give up my reputation for you. You gave up your life for me. I'll give up some of my convenience for you. You gave up your life for me. I'll give up a fraternity or sorority. I'll give up that relationship if it really comes to that. I'll give up some of my comfort. It was the greatest thing in the world. And my fear is, starting with me, we have grown so comfortable and so accustomed because we can. Our faith still, 2022, is so easy when compared to the rest of the world that we have lost our boldness around what really matters. They walked away from the Sanhedrin and the flogging when they didn't have to do it, when they could have renounced. There was an out for them. They rejoiced. And day after day, verse 42, in the temple courts and from house to house, after being flogged, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus It's the Christ, the Son of the living God. What happened to us? What happened to me? What happened to you? Here's what they got that I think we so easily lose sight of, and it's why these verses move me in such a way. They understood 
that there's a lot of other things that we can let go of. There's a lot of unnecessary barriers we don't need to hold on to. But in that name, that is the epicenter of everything. They understood that there is power in that name. That one day, the scripture says, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to the name of Jesus. They understood that in that name is healing and power and restoration. They understood that that's actually the only name that has the power to overcome the names that you've given yourself around the areas where you've fallen short and your baggage and your dysfunction and what you didn't do and what you did do and how do you get away from the haunting reminders. That is the only name that has the power to overcome those labels. That is the only name that through that name salvation is available. And it was so real to them that that name was above every other name. The name of Jesus is greater than any other name that we're sacrificing for and pursuing right now. It's greater than the name on your door. It's greater than the name on your diploma. It's greater than the name on the marquee. It's greater than the name of your favorite band. It's greater than the name of your kid's latest achievement. The name of Jesus is greater than the military division you are a part of. It's greater than your political party. It is greater than your 401k or your retirement or the thing that you're pursuing or the recognition you want. That name is above every single name. And yet, we have sacrificed more for most of those names than we have sacrificed for the name of Jesus. Let's just be honest with one another for a second. We've given up thousands of dollars for the sake of those names. We've prayed hard for those names. In some cases, we've given up seasons of our life with kids and marriage for the sake of pursuing those names. And in most cases, we, we've given up almost nothing, sacrificed almost nothing for the name of Jesus. What happened to us? So this is where I was tempted to just end with some kind of like huge story because there's people all over the globe that they're carrying the name in ways that it's hard for us to even relate to with extraordinary boldness, but I decided against that because it wouldn't make any difference because you'd be enamored with the story. You're like, where do I find more information about the story and the fire and how they got out? Like, and they'd be like, well, we're, we're going to go to eat today. And what's the line on the, the Bucks Packers game? So I'm not gonna do any of those things. So what I decided to do is I wanna give you three things we're gonna end with. These are, these are kind of three steps toward boldness for us. And if I give you these and you're like, this is embarrassing. It's like you compare this first century followers of Jesus, it, it doesn't hold a candle. I agree with you. But this is just where we are in our culture. So these are like baby steps because if we were to be honest, and this isn't, this isn't a guilt thing, this is just we struggle. Some of us, outside of a service where we're sitting in a row around a bunch of other people that you know, at least some of them believe the same things, we haven't even uttered the name of Jesus outside of this context. So this is where we're at. And we have been given the church in our generation. So, so here's just three things really quick. Bold is deciding in our context, 2022, where we live. This is not bold in other areas of the country right now, but it's deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. You felt those moments where like, I should say something, I should say something, I should, and then you don't, but you just feel that tug. A few weeks ago, I met a lady that was in a really serious car accident, couldn't walk, still in rehab trying to recover. During that time, she also had a premature pregnancy of 20-some weeks, and the, the baby survived, but it's just complication on top of complication. And then with that, if you were to listen to her story of like religious background and all of that, it's just, it's hard to, for me to even relate. In 12 years, she's been away from the church and the God thing with what she's walked through over the last year, really wanted nothing to do with God, where some of us have been. 
of just angry and what I've experienced. I don't want anything to do with it. And so she had a really good friend that was walking her through this season and trying to be really, really helpful because, you know, there's moments where you really need to be sensitive to where people are at. And sometimes in the middle of suffering, they don't need three more verses from you. They need your presence. But she just felt this tug of like, I just need to say something. She's like, hey, you should come with me to church and that's not gonna fix everything. But I'm just telling you, there's a community that I'm a part of and it's different. I think it'll be very different than what you grew up with. And I just feel like that's maybe part of what you need right now for healing and restoration. And so she came and this lady was a part of Centerpoint. She invited her friend. And this is gonna, I, I hesitated to tell this because it sounds like such a preacher's story. And what I mean by that is like preachers always have these stories about they're on a plane or this weird thing that happened. You're like, that does not happen in real life. And then everybody responded and gave their life to Christ. And you're like, whatever, like you made that up. So that's, that's always like my danger. But she came, I met her after the service and she couldn't talk. She was just so overcome with emotion. There was like dry heaving and weeping. And it took a good five, seven minutes of just sitting there and like, it's okay. People cry all the time. And she gets done and she proceeds to tell me that whole story and her friend is right there, could barely keep it together. And so she said, I came today reluctantly. It's been 12 years since I walked into a church and this is just what happened. And she's like, somehow it just all clicked at the end of this message and my life is hell right now. But I place my faith and trust in Jesus, like today. And all of that was because she had a friend who took a risk and decided to say something when it would have been easier to say nothing. And just a casual, you know, probably knew she was a Christian. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Listen, and I know where some of us are at. Like, you have no idea my baggage. You have no idea my background. I have no idea what to say. I'm a hypocrite. Of course you are. Lead with that. That's your story. Hey, I've got so much baggage, you don't even have time to hear about all of it. I'm an incredible hypocrite. You need to meet Jesus because that's how spectacular this message is. Like, that's your story to other people. In fact, that generally resonates a lot more than your huge Bible and all of your theological language that honestly nobody is attracted to. They're attracted to, yeah, there may be some parts of you that are still a mess, but that's the message of Jesus. He'll meet you in the mess. Just lead with that. Bold is being willing to say something when it's easier to say nothing. Bold is second thing, taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Just real quick, the best person that I know of this is my wife. And honestly, I had to like think because there, there are dozens of stories that I could tell when we were first got together. And this, honestly, she has inspired me at times. She has guilted me at times. She's made me feel ashamed at times. Like, okay, it's not about preacher stories. She's one of those people that will be in a checkout line in Walmart and like end up praying and crying with somebody. And I'm like, that has never happened to me in my entire life. I don't know how that, it just happens to her. I don't know how it happened. So we were in our townhouse and we got married and there was this guy that was the most cantankerous dude I've ever met in my life. He would stand at his upstairs window in the townhouses and he had like this view of the pool area and it was his sole mission in life. I mean, every day, I think 12 hours a day to make sure that all the pool furniture was lined up correctly and that everybody was following the rules. And then he did that for the whole community. He was not an official member of the HOA, but he just designated himself. And so, and I don't overstate this, everybody hated this guy. And I, I'll never forget the day where my wife is like, he needs a friend. And I was like, he does. And we should pray for Jesus to bring somebody into his life to help him. Because I wasn't going to do it, straight up. And I'll never forget her telling me the story of, yeah, I went over to his house today. And I brought stuff with me. And then that led to several weeks later, he's, she's having lunch with him. 
Um, in his house during the day, still nobody liked this. It ended up getting to the point where we, over time, she invited him to church. We got so close, we would invite him to Christmas Eve breakfast every single year. And he would spend time with us and our family and our kids. And all of it was because I, somebody was willing, and it was not me, to take advantage of the opportunities that presented themselves. During that same time, she got to know another lady. And again, these stories are just our whole marriage, just one right after another. But she met this lady who was jogging in her neighborhood and ended up her husband had a, was only 30-something, had a huge health scare, um, heart issues, really crazy. He's like 35 years old. And so over time, like she tried to tell him, you know, what we do without lying. So like sometimes, like, well, I'm just a teacher I'm a motivational speaker. Because the moment you say that you're a pastor, it gets weird. Like the relationship's over, they don't, they drive their car in and like garage door goes down. You never talk to them again. It's like, so we, we, would, we got to know them, but it was weird and he was super nervous about it. Had some stuff with the church, his background. And um, he would, <laughs> this is the, so when you go into a place, everybody knows you're a pastor, immediately all their language changes and they're like, well, God bless you. And all, I mean, no joke. He would try to hide his cigarette all the time when I would come, when I'd be walking. And so one day I'm walking by his house and literally I'm like, your, your pants are on fire, man. Like literally you're like, there's, so that's, that was the weirdness. Eventually he gets in the hospital for this whole thing. She invited us to come having no idea that he was terrified of that, did not want us to come. So it was a whole argument they had, but we showed up at the hospital because there are neighbors a few doors down and there was just something about it, just feeling out the situation where it's like, I, I'm not going to do the typical pastor thing here because I just don't think he's, and typical pastor thing for me maybe looks really different, but just trying to figure out and be sensitive to where they're at. So I got to the end. I'm like, this is, I'm thinking in my head, this is the time you pray for him and do that whole thing. But I'm just, I'm not going to do that. So we've talked about football the entire time, kind of, you know, bonded over that. And then when I left, I was just like, hey, because he, I mean, he knows I'm a pastor. Hey, praying for you. Hope you get better quick. And I just left. And I, I found out later, he was, this is no joke, he was terrified that I was going to show up, I don't know what his background, show up with anointing oil, and that I was going to pour it and then place my hands on his head and pray, and he was just, he was freaked out by the whole thing. So that, that actually, that response opened the door to where he came um, to a series. A few weeks later, I was on an apologetical series called, um, I don't remember what it was called, and it was during that series that this guy gave his life to Christ, and I wasn't very bold. My wife was bold throughout the whole situation in taking advantage of the opportunities right in front. And then the third thing is just being bold is creating opportunities. It, you see what you are looking for. And for many of you, or, or a few of you really, not many of you, when we started this church, there was a group of people who were bold around a mission and a vision with no people and no money to step out and go, we wanna do something different in this community. But whatever that looks like for you, bold is creating opportunities and looking for what Jesus is doing in your sphere of influence. And here's the thing, man. Aren't you glad for some of you that God did that for you? And here, here's where I, I, I think it lands with me and many of us is we're so busy, we're so comfortable, it costs us so little, we just forget for some of you, you forget what it's like to not really know where you stand with God and to wrestle with that. You forget what it's like to be still defined by your past and have all the haunting reminders. 
You forget what it's like to be in a place where you really don't feel like you have hope. And then here's the message of Jesus. And no, our life is not perfect. And no, I've got things in my life that are a mess. But I'm telling you, I have found hope and peace and freedom and freedom from the chains of my past. And now we understand we've been given this message in our generation. Everybody's gonna live forever. He really is the source of forgiveness and life and hope to rearrange your past and give you a better future. And this moment is not all there is. And we have been placed where we've been placed for a reason. And I just want to encourage you for one second. I get it. You're in a place right now where maybe you're not where you want to be. You followed a guy to another city, he dumped you. You didn't get the job you wanted. You're stuck in a cubicle. You hate it. You're in a drive-through window and you can't wait for the next season of your life. You wanted to go away to a college. You're living with your parents at community college. They walked out of you, walked out on you, and now you're dealing with a divorce that you never would have chosen. And I just want to encourage you on this one thing. If, if you feel like this isn't forever, pray for God to change your circumstances. Look for God to move. But do not underestimate what God is doing right now in this moment. God has a will for your life. And I don't know why he chose to do that. I don't know why you're still working in a drive through window. I don't know why you're still in the cubicle. But God has a will and a destiny, a plan for your life. And in his sovereignty... He's left you there for a reason. And he says to you, hey, you know the guy in the cubicle next to you? I love that guy. I know he's annoying to you, but I love that guy. Go show him. Hey, you know your neighbor that never mows their grass? I love them. I want to save them. And then hopefully they'll repent of their ways and they'll begin to take care of their lawn. I want you to go and I want you to be Jesus to that person. Hey, hey, you know that individual with the awkward social thing, the, the friend that walked away? I love them. And I want you to rep me to them. I want you to be Jesus. And here's what we know from culture or from history. When we do that, culture begins to change. And if you're somebody who's not a Christian and your experience has been terrible, in fact, one of the things you would say is, this is what I hate about Christians. I don't know why they can't just shut up about this. Believe what you want to believe, but just shut up about it and don't try to force it on me. And the reason that you think that is because you have met really obnoxious, really hateful, really awkward Christians that we're not repping the love and the grace of Jesus. And in fact, I'll give you this encouragement. If you're not Christian, you're like, why don't they just shut up about it? Here's the good news for you. Most of us will. So don't worry about it. Because in fact, you, you work with Christians, you live next to Christians, your kid is on a ball team with Christians, and you have no idea because they're covert. It's silent. They don't ever talk about it. But I'm telling you, if we had done our job to be bold around the right things and carry the name of Jesus, when people looked at the Christians like Acts 5, we would be in high esteem because they'd look at us and go, what they believe is weird. And we don't understand all their practices. And why do they give their money away? But those are the most humble, loving, gracious, inclusive individuals on the planet. And I want what they have, even though I'm not sure what they believe, because there is something different about that movement. That's what we would look like in culture if we did what God has called us to do. Because here's the promise, and I'll end with this. You, we, are the light of the world. We are city on a hill. God has placed you where he's placed you for a reason. And stop worrying so much about where you are and stop being obsessed with what you're carrying because God cares more about what you're carrying than where you are physically. And what he wants you to carry is the name and the message of Jesus that God has done something in history. We get a little bit of time and everybody's gonna live forever somewhere and he is the answer to every question that we're asking. Go, wrap that 
that name. Go with that name. Go with that message. It has the ability to change the world. And one of the reasons we are so bored in our faith that it is so anemic and we pray so small and dream so little is because we have forgotten the power that is wrapped up in that name. And you are pursuing education and fab bank accounts and security for your retirement. And all of that's great. But your primary mission as a follower of Jesus is to carry the name of Jesus. And in that, you will find peace and contentment and joy and destiny and God's will for your life. And you will not find it any other place. It's what you have been wired and created to do. Let's go. You're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. The church was born as a movement around that kind of energy. Man, what if we could recapture that? What if our church, I hope to be doing this if I'm healthy for another couple decades. What in the world could God do through us in the next couple decades if we did that? If we had a group of hundreds of people that began to focus on that, what would God do in our city? How would God change us? To settle for anything less than that is the betrayal of this movement and how it started and what we've been called into. So my prayers has been throughout the series is that we would just lift up our heads from all the stuff we're consumed with and that at least in some small way, we'd recapture what God has invited us into in our generation. He's promised to build his church through us. And with all of its dysfunction, he's still doing it all around the world. And the gates of death, hell, and the grave are not going to be able to stop it. Would you stand with me? And I just want to pray over you. And we're going to end with a song in just a second. And we'll be out of here. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this moment. I pray that you take your word, which is living and powerful. It is supernatural. It can do what I cannot do. And I pray right now for just a move of your spirit in our hearts to anchor this in such a way that we would not be able to get away from it. And I'm praying that for me. I pray that the spirit of God would be so strong that we wouldn't just be able to go to the next thing or simply figure out what we're gonna do for lunch or what's gonna happen this week or the money stuff that we're stressed over and why hasn't God answered this prayer and I don't like this job. God, give us vision. The fact that you have placed us here for a reason. Help us to honor those on whom shoulders we stand. What the writer of Hebrews penned this way, that the world was not worthy of them. We want to be a part of that. We want to join that kind of movement. So do your thing in us and for a lot of us, including me. I think, I think the appropriate response is just repentance move in us. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.